is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Pearl Harbor historian Dan Martinez is retiring from the National Park Service after 44 years. When it comes to anything related to December 7th, 1941 in Hawaii, Martinez is no stranger. He has been the go-to guy over the many decades to help put history in context and highlight overlooked stories of our past. He plans to keep working part-time, but for the Pacific Aviation Museum. It's where colleagues pay tribute to him last night. Martinez says it was through his job that he has met presidents, learned lessons about forgiveness and reconciliation from our nation's leaders, including one that involved the late Senator Dan Inouye and Marine Colonel Oliver North during the Iran-Contra affair. And Martinez is humbled to have been able to share stories about Hawaii that are his family's stories, too. He grew up in Southern California among Pacific Islanders, not knowing at the time that these islands would become his home. I ran around with kids, you know, in grammar school that were from Hawaii and from Guam. And so there was a mixture. When I went to the university at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and I just found out we have two graduates here at the Air Museum, and we had kind of a rah-rah thing for a while. Seeing uh, Tongans and Samoans and Hawaiians that were going into higher education, I had never been exposed to some of that culture at all. I grew up in Los Angeles, so being Mexican-American and also with the German background on, on my mother's side, who was here at Pearl Harbor as a young girl and went to Sacred Heart School and witnessed the attack and had her last hula lesson with Hilo Hattie the day before on December 6th, and my grandfather working as a foreman at Red Hill and came down from the hillside just before 8 o'clock to change over the shift and the planes flew right over their head because we're right near uh, Mary Point Landing is where they would have their meetings. So they never took cars up there. They took some trucks. They didn't want anybody to know what they were doing with their building 20, 20 story deep, you know, vessels to hold uh, aviation gas and to hold uh, fuel, oil and it was all gonna be gravity fed. It was a technological marvel. And what's lost today, of course, is that as the years went by, the effects that it was gonna have on our community was going to be, you know, and still is, an ongoing problem that the best people are trying to work on it, but it has its challenges. So your family has this history in the islands, you know, yeah. and here you've spent your life telling the story of what happened here at this place. I rediscovered this place. So when my grandfather, I had some pictures that were taken that, you know, when they went out to the Mormon uh, temple and they went to the North Shore and they went to the Poly Lookout, I was looking at pictures pre-war of that experience. And then I went to Sacred Hearts and my mom wanted me to find out if her favorite teacher, what happened to her, Sister Lorencia. And I went to the convent and I said, can you tell me what happened to Sister Lorencia? Well, nothing happened to her. And I said, oh, she's right here. She was 90. And so I called my mom and I says, she's still alive. So my mom jumped on a plane about two weeks and came over. And every time she came to Hawaii, she went to see Sister Lorencia. And that went on for like 10 years. And then Sister Lorencia passed away. But my mom had that tie to that moment. And where her home was on 2nd Avenue, right in Kaimaki, the freeway took that out. But when I was with her and she walked around and she remembered that how the young girls used to go down to the parks and loved going down to Diamond Head. And, and she just loved being in Hawaii and she kind of moved into adapting into Hawaiian culture by learning how 
to take lessons uh, from Hilo Hayati down at Pilani Park where the Kodak Hula show was, right? And so I was able to touch those bases of history, and I think that immersed me into trying to understand the variety of cultures that were here. And so I went up to St. Louis School, and one of the one of the, her classmates was a coach up there. It was it was like I have a connection here in some way. I got to know the brothers Casimeros through one of the dancers that was one of our park rangers, and so I fell in. I really literally fell in love with that music. So for the Howley that comes here, this culture will touch you if you just reach out. And I was able to reach out to it and embrace it and see the beauty of it and the challenges of Honolulu turning into a modern metropolitan city with all of its challenges and still continued, but still going, you can go back to certain places and touch the history of the past, and in turn, it touches you. You are reflecting on your time, you know, the last 44 years and, and the stories of Pearl Harbor, uh, the, the people that you've met over the years, you know? You know, I, I, my first president that I met was President Bush Sr. And, and when I met President Bush, it was a handshake. I was in a receiving line by the Missouri and just, to, I was in awe. And my first December 7th, it rained, it poured. So we had to move the ceremony. This is my first ceremony, 1985. And so we are pushed into the shrine room over a hundred people, so you can imagine. And right in front of me is Senator Dan Inouye and Admiral Crowell, who goes on to be Joint Chief, and Senator Inouye, who is going to have an incredible career from Watergate to, to the hearings uh, that would go on with the, the famed Marine Colonel. And I, and I remember I was filming a short piece for the History Channel. And I had just finished it, and I'm trying to think of the Marine Corps colonel. He was a colonel, and there were hearings, and Senator Inouye was at the hearings. But we were, he was filming. He had a show on Fox that he did history shows. And so there had been a very bitter exchange between the colonel and Senator Inouye, very sharp exchange. And Senator Inouye, with his military background, knew what the chain of command was and what orders were. And so he grilled him really hard, and it was there were some hard feelings. And so that night, he was in the Bofin's office because he had just finished his filming. They were going to do a little more. Senator Noe was at a party that was being held on the grounds of the Bofin. And so someone told Senator Noe that the colonel was over there, and Senator and I was standing right at the door. And Senator Noe went over there and extended his hand and said, how are you doing, Colonel? And you could see his face change. And I saw the power of forgiveness right there, because that had been a really bitter event. And so um, I got to hang out with Senator Noway because he always came to the December 7th ceremonies. And where this is circling, my first ceremony when we got in there, I'm looking at all of Admiral Crow, and I'm looking at Senator Noway who I deeply admired, and they were right there. Over the years, Senator Noe came to a lot of the December 7th, and he would always sit in the superintendent's office, and I was kind of put in charge of, you know, making sure everything's good for him. And I had these great talks, and he, and he told about his, to me, he told about the story of him getting badly wounded and losing his arm. And uh, I'm thinking, pinch me. I, these, these people of history, and 
What happened after that, as I matured in the Park Service and went up from an interpretive specialist and an interpretive trainer, training park rangers to do talks and all of that, I moved into the historian's position, which I held all the way till this year. I interviewed over three or 400 Pearl Harbor survivors and met them and were with them. And I think that that, that experience is so unique that, that I know these oral histories are still here and they'll be part of it. But I had the honor and privilege to talk to these men and women that survived the attack, not only Americans, but Japanese as well. And my, my Japanese grandfather was Zenji Abe, the, the dive bomber pilot that flew over Pearl Harbor. So I saw this initial strain between Japanese veterans and American veterans. How, are the, how, how do you take away such a bitter event, a surprise attack on the Pacific Fleet? which outraged the country. And as you know, you saw these posters that were part of World War II in, in factories and in buildings of uh, being stabbed in the back. And, and the whole idea of a surprise attack turned into a sneak attack. And the kind of hatred that erupted between the Americans and Japan as they fought in the most brutal war across the Pacific. And of course, the experience for Japanese Americans, which I was exposed to that early. My grandfather uh, and grandmother lived in Lone Pine, California, just 13 miles away from Manzanar. And my grandfather took me over there, and there was a cenotaph that's still there. And uh, people had shot at it, had broken bottles. And my grandfather was a foreman for fencing. He was a miner too, but he was at that time. And he fenced off the area with barbed wire and posts so that people could get in there and do that. I'm a very young, maybe 10 or 11 years old. I'm going, I couldn't differentiate between Japanese and Japanese Americans. I wasn't educated enough. I was too young. I thought that they were, you know, as they have this awful phrase, Japs. Well. Turns out when I went to high school, guess what? Japanese Americans went to my Catholic high school. And even more so when I went to the university and I had a very, Dr. Donald Hata was absolutely changed my world. Because when I went to the university, I had this idea of being a historian. I wanted to do history. And I thought I'd be a teacher of that. But when I sat down with him, this was one tough cookie because he didn't suffer fools. And so I was, I was, had got my uh, AA degree and now I was gonna go for my BA. And uh, he asked me, uh, what do you wanna major in? I said, well, American history. And I, he says, and what you gonna minor in? And I said, a geography. He says, geography, why geography? Well, doesn't uh, other historians do geography? And he said, you wanna be like other historians? So what'd you take? communications. He said the future of history is communications. Think about that. The future of history is communications. We'll hear more about Pearl Harbor historian Dan Martinez's plans now that he is retired from the National Park Service, how he plans to keep the stories of war here in Hawaii alive for future generations. We'll be right back after a break.
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. The city of Milwaukee has an ambitious climate plan to cut its carbon emissions. There's a lot of different ways that climate change is affecting us, even here in the Midwest. We've got to act. We've waited way too long. Hundreds of U.S. cities have similar plans, and very few have met their goals. Why not? Is there a better way for cities to tackle climate change? Join us for that on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Animals in Japanese Art, features works from HOMA's permanent collection rich in animal imagery and cultural associations. HonoluluMuseum.org. joining us, we have been hearing from Daniel Martinez, a longtime historian with the National Park Service and the Pearl Harbor National Memorial. Martinez went on to produce many documentaries with the Park Service, as well as national documentaries for Netflix. He's also written several books and led military tours in Europe, sharing the stories of World War II. He credits California State University of Dominguez Hills for setting him on his career path. Let's continue our conversation with Martinez. As you come to this crossroads in, in your life, knowing where you came from and how you fit here in Hawaii and how you lived your life here, you know, highlighting these stories of that really incredible time here in Hawaii, how do you look toward the future? Because the other day I thought of you when I saw a news clip about the last Arizona Memorial survivor, and it's just so important to keep these stories out there. Lauren Bruner is the last, and he's been a great friend, I call him. I just have been so fortunate. I've had a lot of accommodation here in Hawaii with the Japanese-American veterans and other people like me that are involved with them and being involved with the media here and being on PBS and being involved with the University of Hawaii and their professors. I have had such opportunities that I can't even believe how lucky I have been. They said the definition of luck is great preparation. And I think I had the preparation to take advantage of some of the opportunities that you extended to me. Has there been setbacks? Yeah, you always have professional setbacks. I've been very fortunate at the end of my career to have terrific people in the National Park Service that I worked with and worked for. The new superintendent has just turned the National Park in a new direction. And with his experience, the visitor experience and the local experience will be enhanced. There's no doubt in my mind, I saw it last year and I see it now, that that this place that we call Pearl Harbor National Memorial is not just for my neighbors, say the tourists, but rather visitors that come there, but also it is that object lesson that students that now come to the park here that live in Hawaii, both from grammar schools to high school to college, start to get the idea, wow, this is a bigger and a more important story that it changed Hawaii forever. Maybe for the good, maybe for the bad, but it is that central point that's the dividing line of what Hawaii was like in 1941 and what Hawaii is like now in 2023. 
there's this kind of axis the world sometimes turns on, and Hawaii turned that axis in 1941, and it was never going to be the same. Well, we're sitting up here in one of the offices of the Aviation Museum, and you know we're looking out on the tarmac, and you know well, we're looking right out on the hangars and the runway that was strafed that morning, and, and that's where Amelia Earhart took off from, and we tell that story. But it's aviation story, and this is for a long time this has been misnamed. At the time, this what they call Ford Island or Ford's Island which goes back to the days of the, of the king and the queen of Hawaii. But this particular place is strictly aviation was here. So Pearl Harbor Naval Air Station is the a name for the entire facility here. And this is where, you know, when the carriers came in, they flew their planes in here, got them serviced. This is where the Pacific War was marshaled. And when you think of the Battle at Coral Sea, it came out of here. When you think of the Battle of Midway, it came out of here. And not only Navy squadrons, Marine squadrons. Naval aviation has its birth here with the Army first. And that was at the turn of the century when Wright brothers were starting to fly and his planes got a little bit sturdier. They came out here as float planes. This is a critical part of American history that I think has been lost. And we hope to bring that history forward and having it as Pearl Harbor Naval Air Station, just like the one over at Kaneohe Bay Naval Air Station. These were the eyes of the Pacific Fleet and they could go out thousands of miles to scout and that's why the Japanese struck these so hard. And that's why the first bombs fell on the uh, PBY ramp. They needed to destroy the ability of those planes to go out and look for them. So the Japanese had appreciation for these aircraft and they knew they were vital to the American effort. And unfortunately for us, within 22 minutes, those eyes were taken away. So you want to, I guess, recite maybe this part of the history and make sure that story yeah. is out there. I think recite is, is good, but I think enlarge is even better and make people aware that this battlefield that we are, are on is a battlefield, just like Gettysburg. Things happened here. That night, you know, the fighter planes came in, half a dozen of them, and I knew one of the pilots. He's the only pilot that got his plane down. And he flew in and they, they were supposed to come in they were waved in to land that night, and they banked over the, the Naval Air Station, and they opened up on them. They shot them all down but one. And so that story will be told. You know, the folly sometimes of war. But, you know, when the recovery of happened at Pearl Harbor, everybody talks about the, the ships that were raised and repaired. Well, think about the naval facilities here in the air station. That's a story we'll tell. And how important this naval air station was to the history of World War II in the Pacific. And so the Aviation Museum, then going forward, you hope to be able to make your mark here and make sure that this part of the history gets its limelight. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, the, with the new administration here, that's where they want to go. And I want to take them there and I want to help them and I want to do small tours for people that they get this inside information. I'd like to see more living history done here. And I'd like to see what we're seeing as a lot of local kids finding this history. And we have a really strong education program here. There's really great opportunity to extend the boundaries of this site to the community and share that history with them. That's really their history. Well, Dan Martinez, thank you for all you do. And I'm glad you're not 
going away <laughs> and yeah. will be here for us to tap your knowledge and to help bring context and appreciation to this place where we live. Well, thank you. Thank you for this interview and, and uh, aloha. We've been hearing from Pearl Harbor historian Daniel Martinez, who retired this month after 44 years with the National Park Service. He plans to work part-time as a historian with the Pacific Aviation Museum, expanding our view of the stories of what he says were the eyes of the Pacific Fleet. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're asking you about the Juneteenth National Independence Day that officially became a federal holiday in 2021. It commemorates the events of June 19, uh, 1865, when the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached Texas, where there were approximately 250,000 enslaved people. The Hawaiian Kingdom had already outlawed slavery in 1852 and declared that any individual brought to Hawaii's uh, enslaved would be emancipated. During this era, the news of the radical discrimination experienced by Native Hawaiians on the continental U.S. had made its way back home, and even leadership was not spared. In 1845, on a trip to the U.S., Prince Alexander Liholiho and his brother Prince Lot were nearly thrown off a train by a conductor who thought they were black. In 1901, Queen Lili Ookalani was turned away by four hotels in New York because of the color of her skin. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the name of the city in Texas where the troops went to enforce emancipation. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets her HBR reusable tote bag. Swing low, swing low, sweet Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Today on The Daily, an anonymous music producer jolted the music industry by using artificial intelligence to impersonate Drake. My colleague, Joe Coscarelli, on what AI could mean for the future of music. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
sticker shock, highway robbery. Well, that's pretty much what Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Jack Truesdale got wind of in the world of Hawaii's towing services. He joins us for our reality check. Hey, Jack. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? Good. So tell us about this story. I mean, I just about fell over a $1,000 towing fee. 900 to be exact. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is a new fee that the city's contractor is charging for um, s- unclear reasons. <laughs> well, I mean, it, tell us. I mean, th- these prices went up um, kind of overnight, right? Yep. Um, when the new year kicked in, the company started charging a $900 so-called recovery fee, um, which normally would be meant for, say, pulling a car out of a gully, but has also been used for towing a car that was rear-ended at an intersection, um, where it wasn't exactly a difficult situation. And so you got wind of these complaints. People were just somewhat astounded that these prices seemed so high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- t- tell us about that. Who were the towing companies? Um, the towing company is called All Island Automotive Towing. They have the exclusive right to tow for Honolulu. Um, they were one of two bidders for the contract. Um, an interesting little detail was that they offered to pay the city $3,000 a month for the exclusive right to tow, and the company that lost the bid only offered $5 a month for the exclusive right to tow, um, sort of as a uh, guarantee of business that the city was offering these tow companies, all these towing jobs, and in exchange, the the towing company offered $3,000 a month for it, which I just found pretty astounding, um, but yeah. Well, so what does the state have to say about that? I mean, is this legal? How does that work? Um, The state isn't saying much yet, um, but the Office of Consumer Protection is looking into it. They just won't go into details as there is a pending investigation. Okay, so we've got this contract. The city has a contract with this company. And what does the city say about whether these charges are reasonable? Sure. the city, so the contract is managed by the city's Department of Customer Services, and um, I sat down with the department's director, Kim Hashiro, last week, and she said that they are just following the contract, um, but that the city is now looking into concerns. And so these so-called difficult hookups, I mean, is that just, you know, something that they're slapping on there so they can charge people? I mean, it almost seems like gouging. Uh, That is what it would seem like. Uh, The owner of the company, though, Paul Perry, told me that that the assessment of what is reasonable is, quote, in the eyes of the beholder. And he asked me, um, if you were to stand on the freeway with motorists passing by for 16 minutes or longer, do you think standing there for $900 is reasonable? Um, And that's because the fee for $900 kicks in after the first 15 minutes of work that they spend Um, hooking up a car and that time that they include can also mean just like sweeping up the road um, or like cleaning fluids that spilled out of a car Um, not necessarily you know using a crane to pull a car off that's off the road back onto the road 
Well, I can't recall a time when I've actually seen a tow driver sweep up things. I mean, usually it's the fire department <laughs> when after an accident, <laughs> but um, interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we've got the situation, the state's looking at it, the city is looking at it. Um, I don't know. Any chance of relief? I mean, have the, the complaints about this, you know, soared? Um, yeah, I think the city said they had about 10 complaints. Um but I imagine there are going, there probably are going to be more. There are at least 120 people who've been hit with this fee at least one time. Um, so I'm sure more will surface in the coming, you know, weeks and months. But the city indicated that um, they're still in a fact-finding process, and probably any changes to the contract are months away. And so this is just for the tow. It doesn't take into account any storage fee or anything like that, then, huh? Any what? Sorry. Any uh, storage fee for a car? Yeah, the storage fee is uh, pretty reasonable. It's like twenty-five dollars a day. Um, so the any gouging is not happening there exactly. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, we'll we'll look forward to the update. But thanks so much, Jack. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Jack Truesdale with today's reality check. Read his story at civilbeat.org. is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about a new type of space observatory on the far side of the moon. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things that we might be able to spot on our own in our skies. As usual, we are so fortunate to have the expertise of resident astronomer who has been doing Stargazer now for about 10 years with us, Christopher Phillips. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, Stargazers look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will set by around 10 p.m., so catch them while you can. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase. This, of course, means that conditions for stargazing will be perfect through week's end. And there is a, uh, I always love the fun stories that we get, like this one here. How about an inflatable telescope that one can put on the moon? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the idea of an inflatable telescope sounds rather far out, but as it turns out, this is the perfect system for an observatory on the moon. Scientists at the European Space Agency have designed such an instrument. It looks like an inflatable mattress, but it is studded with an array of radio antennae that, in theory, could enable groundbreaking developments in radio astronomy. Seems like a good idea when you think about how expensive it would be and difficult to 
build stuff up there. Maybe just a little blow-up balloon kind of deal would work. Yeah, it's one of the advantages of such an approach. It's very cheap compared to actually going there and building something. Essentially, the observatory is folded up just like an air mattress would be and carried to the moon on board a heavy lift rocket. This compact design means that the observatory can be built and tested here on Earth before sending it off to its final destination. So then when this thing gets there, I'm just guessing this can just offload on its own automatically and, and just kind of open up all by itself, kind of like uh, be fully inflated, like you pull a little button, a machine will do it, and boom, it'll be done. <laughs> That's the idea, essentially, yeah. It's inflated by a gas cylinder on board the spacecraft and no construction required. Again, this is another advantage of the inflatable approach. It allows the facility to be efficient both in its capacity as cargo on the rocket and also it is completely hands-off in deployment. Why do we even need to send people back there, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and explain why doing this on the moon, although I'm a, and not doing it on the Earth. I'm imagining it's because your visibility up there is going to be stellar. Oh, yeah, you nailed it. The lunar atmosphere is incredibly thin, almost non-existent, and that means it is perfect for radio astronomy. Radio telescopes here on the Earth are constrained by our dense atmosphere. By deploying an inflatable radio telescope array on the moon, we have essentially pristine observing conditions, allowing for the detection of very faint sources of radio waves in the universe. To avoid interference, is this like a far side of the moon thing? Yep, it really is. Not only does the lunar environment there offer amazing observing conditions, but it also eliminates radio interference from the Earth, because all of our radio signals, including Stargazer, get broadcast out into the universe, whether we like it or not. Well, that's why we're number one on Alpha Centauri, apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's Christopher Phillips and another fascinating Stargazer. Appreciate it. Yo, welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, designing more than 2,000 projects since 1988 committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com It's now time to reveal your backyard quiz answer. Hawaii was the 49th state to ratify the Juneteenth National Independence Day. Juneteenth was signed into law by former Governor David Ige in 2021 and recognized as a day of remembrance. It is not a state holiday like it is in 27 other states. Texas was the first to enact it into law in 1980. Some in Hawaii believe the lessons of the 1960s civil rights and black power movement helped inspire Hawaiian leaders and serves as part of the foundation of the 1970s Hawaiian Renaissance era. Ideas of ethnic pride, dissemination of culture, and a recognition of historic injustice changed the lives of all people of color in the United States, including the people of Hawaii. On June 19, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger led 2,000 federal troops into Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation and the freedom of the enslaved population. Early in the show, we asked you to name the city in Texas where the troops went to enforce the emancipation, and the answer is Galveston, Texas. And our winner today, Shelley from Maui, got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. One place you might be surprised to know has a 130-year history of being a home away from home for Hawaiians is Chicago. Yes, Chicago. In fact, the city's Field Museum recently opened an exhibit entitled Chicago's Legacy Hula. It explores the migration of Kanaka Maoli to the Windy City and celebrates four Kumuhula who made significant contributions to area communities. Lani Alohali is one of the curators and the executive director of the Aloha Center Chicago. She's a third-generation Native Hawaiian born and raised in the area. The conversation's Russell Subiano talked to her recently about the exhibit. Can you talk about what you know about the history of Hawaiians in Chicago? I mean, I'm pretty shocked to learn about it. I'm so glad you feel that way because a lot of us are still also very stunned um, <laughs> at all that we had learned through the research. And when I first started this idea of trying to curate an exhibition with the Field Museum, tell some story about the Hawaiians, I began with, of course, my kupuna, my kumuhula, who were here, the four that had never been recognized. And I thought that would be a great honor. I could finally put our kupuna on the map in Chicago. And, and that's where it began. And I had even spent a decade, at least almost two decades, on just my own research of trying to do the same thing, identifying the first Native Hawaiians who had migrated to the Midwest, who had greatly impacted the future development of our communities as we know them today. There's a reason for everything. And more and more made sense to me as I did that. But I only had half the story. And so when we started the research on this, it really, I think we met about 55 times before I felt there was a story, before the arrival of these four kumuhula, which was the mid-20th century, the, the early 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, yeah? So looking at just the beginning of that research, what had happened was we were in the collection at the Field Museum, and, and nothing was really talking to me. We were kind of spent, and I didn't feel like we had the, the right story yet to attach to this. And then our collections manager says, why haven't we looked at the Kahili? And I swear, I, I grew up in this field museum, and I never saw them or knew about them, and it was never talked about anyways. 
Well, I had done many years of work with them. So in that moment, all of them came out. Turns out we had 37 Kahili. And of the 37, 35 were donated by a very special person, which is what one of the things I think makes it very unique. So in the discovery of the Kahili, then we look at the Ambi'i that we now know had migrated to Chicago, and that just opened up gateways. So when we look at Hawaii, the first to have come, we know more now than we did before through the research of the exhibit. We know that the basics, the Ambi'i was toppled, the economic equality took effect. It had Hawaiians leaving for good, but there were some actions that the Ali'i took that set the pace and the tone for Hawaiians moving forward. One of those things was in 1891, of course, King Kalakawa creates the Hui Le Mamo, and specifically to strengthen the hula practice, and they were a royal course and hula troop. After his death, the queen authorized and sent a delegation to travel to the 1893 World Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Not just anywhere, but Chicago. And then there is Kulamanu, Princess Kulamanu, who brings her ohana. And she chooses to donate all of those 35 kahili came from the same person. That was what really made me think, who was that? Who had that many? Who took the time to box all that, put them on a ship, get them up to the bay, and then put them on trains and bring them to Chicago when they were already in Hawaii. And that this ali'i grew four generations, she leaves us here. That's for the first time in my life have I ever heard this affirmation, this, this piece of missing information that could have made so many more Native Hawaiians proud here in Chicago. That was the real true beginning of the Hawaiians coming up to Chicago. That's that clocked at, at about 130 years ago. And that things have changed over that 130 years since the arrival. So knowing that, all of the first dancers in Chicago, we, we can say were experts trained in sacred practices. Because that first arrival were members of the Hui Le Mamo. These were the members that were selected as the delegation to come and represent Native Hawaiians in Chicago. On arrival, though, of course, they were also pressured by American managers to, you know, give audiences what it wanted, which was a part of who they were, we are, as a people. And that's where things started to kind of maybe went so far, so quickly apart that it was hard for the, the Native Hawaiians who remained to hold all that traditions and culture and the expertise that they bring, keep it grounded. Because while that group was en route to Chicago, the queen was illegally overthrown. And it was uncertain, the future of Huma and the dancers was all uncertain by the time they landed in Chicago. But during this time after their arrival, for the next easy 40, 50 years, we would begin to see not only Hula, but the first Native Hawaiian musicians that had come to the Chicago area. 
And recently, again through this project, there were pages and pages of Native Hawaiian musicians who had come to Chicago and impacted the music industry as well, which is a whole nother book. We can do a whole nother exhibit on that and the influence that they had on the other cultures here on the continent. And this is the beginning of our hula. This is the beginning. And it would grow then with the arrival of the Kumu hula. What were the names of the four Kumu? So Caroline Ka'a'a, her surname was Namahoi. She is laid to rest in Homeilani in Kilkaha. She was not Uniki, but she had been brought into the industry guided by Kumuhula from Hawaii at the time before coming up to Chicago. And then there was Bill Ka'ulu Sharman, who was Uniki by Henry Pa, Kumuhula Henry Pa. And he found his way up through military. He was in the Air Force and was a stenotypist. And we have to credit him for being the first to offer hula out in the open in Chicago at that time. That was the very beginning of hula today as we know it and why it's still here today. It's the sum of all four. But he was the first to begin to deliberate in a suburb right outside of Chicago and also was the first who used his skills that he picked up from the Air Force as a stereotypist, he developed a model of how to document hula here. Because what was apparent to him is there were no musicians who was going to have to be dependent on records like Keave. We all had the same one. And he would choreograph all of the melee on these records because he knew that they would have access to them and could practice and do their hula in their homes or gatherings, family gatherings and things like that. And then there is Auntie Pat Kanaha married Yamanuha up here in Chicago. So she arrived Kanaha and then married Fred Yamanuha. And she was pukut by Auntie Emma Sharp. She is so Maui. <laughs> <laughs> and she was the stick clerk on Hula Protocols. And when she arrived, she was very honest when these four sat down um, and they kind of made a plan of how they could move forward together here in Chicago. But she was honest and she was kind of not trusting of what she was seeing at that point in time. And it did linger for the rest of her life that she just didn't feel safe. She, she just cherished the hula that she had received so much that she would rather protect it to the point where she wouldn't start halal. Instead, she chose mentorship, and she chose selectively. You, you couldn't just come and ask for something and think you're going to get it. You had to have purpose. There had to be a connection. There had to be a real good, grounded reason why someone would approach her. And I think she was quite effective that way because the things that she could offer the right people has helped them, I see this today, has helped them greatly, and they're still carrying it forward. That was the whole idea. And the last arrival was Uncle Ed Kalihiki, Miki by Mike, and he came to Chicago by way of the airlines, United Air. He was a different, he was the first to bring 
Ooh, I still feel his key. His live chanting. Everything had been the albums, yeah? Uncle Bill's whole league of students, his homeowner. There were so many. But it wasn't until Uncle Ed showed up and people realized, wow, this is the substance we have been missing. So I have gone so many years doing a hula to a recording and then finally being able to do your hula in front of someone who is actually chanting right behind you. You can feel it. You can feel them. I feel it pulls in the hula. You're more focused on the text and your emotions. He was the first to bring Kahiko. And my grandmother, she was the one that carried the original Olalo. So every morning, in the morning, she would chant. Only, and it was so much more for me. And each of them had their reasons for coming up. So they were just staying honest to what brought them to Chicago and how they can best share with us in Chicago while they're with us. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for talking with me today. Mahalo, mahalo for having me. Aloha. That was Aloha Center, Chicago's Alani Aloha Lee, talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. The Field Museum Chicago Legacy Hula Exhibit will be open through March of 2025. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. That does it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the state's budget director about the governor's decisions to try and balance the budget. Questions, comments, call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Find the conversation uh, podcast archived on our website. We are also on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you get those podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.